Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the David Watson podcast. Today, I spoke to Aaron, also or better known perhaps as the Mofo Mechanic, an absolute legend when it comes to tackling a lot of the bullshit going on in the health industry. I first got to know him on social media, and I just I love his content. I love the way he explains injuries and recovery, and he's so passionate about his work and he puts his money where his mouth is he proves and he's happy to go out there and debate with other people and funnily enough so far no one's wanted to join him on those debates but we had a great conversation i hope you enjoy listening to it as much as i enjoyed listening to aaron it was brilliant thank you good evening welcome to the david watson podcast thank you for coming on how are you I'm very good, thank you, David. Very good indeed. We had a little bit of dialogue off uh, off off air, didn't we? We had, so, yeah. Uh, Just to give people context, we we suddenly realised after ten minutes of talking, we should start the podcast and start yeah, recording think, what we're talking about. And I think there's a danger we're just going to end up just talking and talking. This this hour is going to start to morph into three hours if we're not careful. It is. It is. So we're going to start straight off the bat with Vibrant Finger, and yeah. Um, discuss so what i'm going to put in is some caveats first as to why i had them or have them and they're actually probably close to 10 years old so i had them a long long time and have mixed feelings about them so yeah one thing that they've been useful for over the years is when i've gone abroad to other countries surfing and yeah. i've got to walk across rocks yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they're brilliant for surfing, right? So I, thought, I, can... I find they're a really good form of contraception as well because when you're wearing them, <laughs> nobody wants to come near you. <laughs> and uh, when was it? I think it was about 2016. I yeah. rolled my ankle really badly running, and and it was a proper fucker. One of those ones where because I used to like running with no headphones, no phone, no nothing, and I was about a mile and a half from home went down a sort of pothole actually yeah. pretty much i didn't break anything but i pretty much shattered all the ligaments in my ankle and had yeah. a mile and a half walk home in tears because i was in that much pain and when wow. i eventually got back to training i had a really bad ankle and, and when i started wearing them it stopped but that yeah. might have also coincided with a better awareness of mobility drills and balance drills which happened at the same time so it might not have been down to the shoes yeah i mean i think i think with your ankle my take on that would be so the vast majority of people when, when you see people training in trainers in the gym if you think about the interface between your foot and the floor you know you've got a, a probably like an inch of rubber which when you you know when you're weight bearing through it provides a degree of shock absorption but when you've got weight on your back, it it creates almost like a, a portable wobble board. Like your yeah. trainer becomes like a wobble board. So I think for people who've got you know ankle sprains and have got ankle instability as a result of those ankle sprains, what your trainers are doing is actually creating an unstable surface to lift from. And I think where the vibrams probably came in or the barefoot shoes came in, I think is more about stability. So it's reducing the perturbation, it's reducing that movement in the ankle and therefore the irritation on the ligaments. Yeah, because I, I think what with them, what was useful for them is because I was trying to focus on, I've hurt my ankle, I need to repair it. Yeah. 
and that they these ones particularly have a really thin sole even yeah before, they do. yeah yeah, know, yeah. A, a yeah. barefoot one so I, I could literally feel the lumps in the gym floor yeah yeah and and i think it was it's they really are those ones at least are really are like bare feet and you it's are like, aware it's like wearing a condom over your foot isn't it it's it is like yeah, that, yeah. That, that's that little material between your foot your foot and the floor yeah so when i would do things like just try and brace my feet on the floor and sort of like twist and yeah you know, twist and yeah screw your feet into the floor yeah and all of that that was where the i think is where the awareness came from and why they didn't hurt compared to trainers yeah 100 percent. and i think that you know when i when i criticize barefoot footwear it's not the actual footwear i think in some circumstances i think it's they're very useful i think what i'm criticizing is this uh misguided belief from a lot of coaches who advocate that everybody wears vibrams because mm. they're the panacea that cures all ills you know i think it's those blanket approaches that i think uh, where the where the, the footwear falls down you know i think as a as a foot ideally your foot needs to be in a trainer where you can create a tripod yeah. so if you think of the like if my hand shook your foot that's the big toe if that's the little toe and if that's the heel essentially there should be an equal amount of weight distribution across those three points in the foot or, I mean, that's because that's due to loading through the ankle, loading through the knee, loading through the hips, loading through the back. And I think sometimes when people put some of the trainers on that they use in the gym, the toe boxes are very narrow. And as a result of the toe box being narrow, they can't create that tripod foot. Yeah. So therefore, they start to weight bear more onto the outside or more onto the big toe or more onto the heel. And I think it's those situations where maybe vibrams become quite useful because they've got a wide toe box. You know, I think if you could find a trainer that had a similar shaped toe box, maybe not with the five fingers, but the, some of the Vivo ones, the toe boxes yeah. are very wide. If you could create that in a trainer with a minimalist heel, I think you'd probably have exactly the same situation or you'd, you'd find exactly the same effect in terms of your connection with movements and your connection with exercises. I think it's just, you know, uh, they, th that post in particular was prompted by a coach advocating, well, he was basically telling all his athletes to wear Vibrams. Um, not that he's sponsored by Vibram, to my knowledge. Um, and interestingly, of a number of his clients um, who were in barefoot shoes, um, a couple are having to have MRI scans on their knees because the barefoot shoe wasn't supporting the inside of the knee. It was actually causing them to collapse more inwards, which was exacerbating their, their, their current injury. So it was more about, like I say, it's not so much the, the shoe per se. I do think there's a lot, a lot to be said for barefoot. I mean, in fact, I... When I left, so when I left basic training in the forces, I had the world's worst shin splints. Yeah. Um, I didn't really know much about running at this point in time, other than the fact that I, you just had to run a lot in the forces. Um, yeah, an awful lot in boots and yeah, in that. So when I got to trade training, I had horrific shin splints. Like I couldn't even tolerate the weight of the, the sheet of my bed on my chins. They were that sore. I'm sure I probably had stress fractures, but, you know, you, you take some brufin and you just push on because that's what you do. Um, told to. 
Because you've been told to, absolutely. And when I got to my trade training, for some reason, I mean, this is back in the 90s, before the barefoot movement really became a, a thing, I, I decided I was going to take my shoes and socks off and I was going to run across the station sports field. Unlike the park, where there's probably needles and dog shit and all sorts of stuff, the station sports field was like a, you know, it was like they, they paint it green when the Queen visits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, very familiar with that. Um, so I ran across the, I ran across the station sports field barefoot. I realized that I didn't heel strike when I was running barefoot. So I then changed the way that I ran when I put my trainers back on so that I adopted more of a, a midfoot striking stance. And within two weeks, my shin splints are gone. Yeah. So I think a lot of times when you get lower limb injuries, it's partly down to the fact that the shoes are foot coffins and that they switch all the muscles off in your feet. So your muscles in your feet, you've got four layers of muscle, the intrinsic muscles of your feet. So as your muscles in your feet get weaker, your arch starts to flatten, and your arch is like a shock absorber. The idea of your arch yeah. and your foot is it dissipates force. Um, so I think there's number one, the barefoot shoes probably wake your muscles up a bit and make your feet a bit more reactive and less sleepy, less, less, uh, less dead-like. And I think number two, it, it changes your gait mechanics. So it stops you from doing the things that cause huge ground reaction forces, which then cause problems upstream in the ankles or the knees or the hips or the back. Well, so funnily enough, just, sorry, to, just to clarify, I don't, I don't actually hate Vibrams. Yeah. Uh, I just I hate that they're this, this blanket approach from people where they say everybody should wear Vibrams because they're going to, you know, they're going to cure the sick and, Funnily enough, it never fixed my my flat foot and my right foot. Never touched it. No, never no. changed a single thing. You know, yeah, and that could be because I've broken one of the the, the long toe in there. Um, but you know, it, it never it never affected that at all. And like like you know, it, as much as I I have a pair, I don't I don't wear them that often these days because my garden is in the gym. Uh, my gym is in my garden now, so yeah. they're not. But my thing with them has always been, why? What is it you think they're going to cure? Before yeah. you go and buy yeah. any trainer, if you yeah. think I need a sp specific trainer for this, what is it you think that specific trainer is going to fill? What role is it yeah. going to take? And I think it? when people say to me, what's a good pair of trainers to train in? I think, well, a good pair of trainers is a, a, a pair of trainers that allows you to create your tripod foot yeah. in the trainer, whether that's, you know, Metcons, Vibrams, Vivos, whichever brand of trainer you choose to use. That has to be a bit driven by your foot shape and, and whether you can kind of create that tripod foot, that equal distribution weights across the foot. So, yeah, so I think Vibrams and the whole barefoot movements, I think you have to transition very slowly into barefoot. I think the other thing, the other mistake people make is they go from wearing a, you know, an inch heel wedge on the trainers to all of a sudden wearing almost no heel wedge, like a condom on the foot. Um, and your heel cord, your Achilles tendon, well, that just thinks, fuck off, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And then you start developing Achilles tendon problems and, you know, the whole kind of windlass mechanism, the bottom of your foot, the calf, all that starts to become problematic. Um, and I think that's the danger of just people listening to this kind of rote advice that's that's spewed on uh, on social media and various other, other social media platforms. Well, that's one of the things that I love, actually love about your your channel, mm. um, and one of the reasons I I, um, I always share your posts because 
there is so many things that have just become somebody mentioned it on a podcast it was somebody famous or yeah. uh, you know the the latest fad just just and all credit to your wife dan danielle for doing the videos because yeah you know, they are oh brilliant. she makes me look good I'm I'm, yeah. I'm I'm an absolute i'm a moron in front of the camera normally she <laughs> makes me look like i'm you know remotely intelligent <laughs> but it is the fact you say look that that's not how this works it, it just can't work like that because that's not yeah. how the body works and, and like you were yeah. saying with, with the the um the barefoot movement there's nothing wrong with it but what you're trying yeah. to do is, is get a, tr yeah. a tripod in your feet that, that's all you're yeah. trying to do and that doesn't matter if you put a plank of wood on your foot or six inches of sponge if the if the tripod's yeah. there it's there and know. i think the thing we've got to remember is that you know we, we've gone from running on the shifting sands of the savannah when we were barefoot yeah we're now running on pavements and asphalt and concrete and all sorts of, of surfaces and i'm sure our ancestors weren't running on the surfaces we're running on and i think as a consequence you know, you do that for long enough, you're going to pick up some overuse injuries. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the guys and girls who, you know, really live and breathe the barefoot movement, who run and jump and do all of the various things they do in their, in their day-to-day lives and sports, I think it's it's almost like comparing apples and pears. You know, you, you, you the, our environment is completely different and the demands on the body are completely different as a result. Also as well, because um, when you look at, even uh, modern day tribal people on the savannah, the ones that like, oh, look at them, they run like gazelles. Yeah. yeah. They look like gazelles as well. They're not yeah. like me, five foot seven knuckle draggers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I could carry and lift shit all day long. Yeah. I, I, I don't run. I, I'm good. I'm good for a 10 second burst and I can sprint and I can probably tow a car at high speed for 10 seconds. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't run a fucking mile if my yeah. life depended on it. Yeah. And even in my best days, I ran a mile and looked like somebody that shouldn't be running. <laughs> yeah, I was uh I was I was much the same. I'm I'm a I'm a five foot nine hobbit. Yeah. So uh I have a long torso and long arms and, and short legs, which makes me perfectly suited for deadlifting and squatting. But yeah, running is it was never my thing. Well, my if my um, when I used to do a lot of surfing, my friends used to call me T Rex. So that tells you everything you need to know about my arms. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. you go. Because I couldn't get my surfboard <laughs> under my arm, and I'd have to hold it out like that. See, <laughs> my friend, uh, my my training partner and coach is is six. I think he's five eleven, six foot. He's six foot. We'll call him six foot because he's, he's he'll tell you he's six foot. Yeah. Um, and his my arm span, my wingspan, my ape index. Is bigger than his ape index, and yet I'm probably at least four or five inches shorter than he is. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, and I think this is the the issue with anything that you kind of claiming works across a variety of different populations and a variety of different injuries. You have to take individual biomechanics and, and morphology into account. You know, it's yeah. like like back pain. You know, if we look at like the different types of back pain that people experience when we when we do research i, I lectured for about 15 years so i was a, a consumer and producer of research as well as lecturing up-and-coming physio students um and when you look at back pain research back pain is simply classified as pain below the bottom of the 12th rib and the top of the pelvis so if you have pain in that region 
you have lower back pain. So don't try and differentiate between discogenic pain and facet joint pain and muscle strains and all that various stuff. So they throw some things, some interventions at it, and some people get better and some people get worse and some people stay the same. But through the power of statistics, you can average that out to find out the one that's got the like the highest trend, you know, the highest yeah. kind of, and um, and then on that basis. You know, then we're, we're changing protocols that have been used successfully for years and years and years. It's like core stability. You know, core stability came about in 1990. I think it was 1999 the San Francisco Spine Institute came out with this concept. I remember going to a – I did a guest lecture for the a, a company called For Goodness Shakes who uh, used to have like a talented athlete program. And the head of British swimming was there. Um, and he was clearly a, a core stability advocate. And I remember stood up in this lecture in front of all these uh, impressionable young athletes, uh, and me and him just almost like going at it. And he's saying, oh, core stability. And I was like, it, it, isn't, it isn't the panacea that cures all Ill, else. It's not. Back pain isn't simply down to weak no. core or weak glutes. It's much more complicated than that. I did a thing recently with um she's actually, she's actually a friend of mine she's somebody i work with um but i've been doing some hypnosis with her and yeah. she her and i were talking so she, she, just sort of quick reference she, she has um a celiac disease and when okay. i was talking to her yeah. it's like you're really anxious about that i can't fix your celiac yeah. but i can fix the anxiety ironically yeah, now yeah. that she's pretty much relaxed and, and she has regular sessions sort of every couple of weeks to four yeah. anything from two to six weeks right depending on my schedule and her schedule she doesn't have any celiac symptoms anymore not because i've fixed anything because yeah. i've lowered her stress down to zero so there's nothing yeah, yeah. to react yeah 100 we, we were talking one day about i can't remember what we were just talking about she goes oh yeah and her neck was a bit i was like what's wrong with your neck she goes oh it's because i have a bad back i'm due to go to the chiropractor and i was like how long you be going to the chiropractor Oh, I don't know. 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, why? Yeah. And she goes, oh, I had an accident when I was 13. I got thrown off a horse. And she goes, and I, um, I ended up in an ambulance. I was in traction for a couple of days. But it turned out I didn't break anything. I was like, so nothing was broken? She went, no. I said, there's nothing wrong with your back. I said, your brain your brain keeps telling you something wrong with your back. And she goes, oh, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. And, I, and, I, and it was the middle of summer. It was last year. And we both had like a glass of water. And we was in her house. And I said, hold that glass of water out. I said, now drop it on the carpet. She's like, why the fuck would I do that? I said, that's what your brain is doing in your back all the time. And I said, it's literally like, I'm not letting go of your back because you hurt it. And I said, and all I did was put yeah. it back under. I, I seriously, I, I yeah. put it back under, had a conversation with her about when you were there at 13, you had an accident. You went in an ambulance, you went to hospital, you had x-rays, you seen the specialists Nothing was broken. Nothing was hurt. There is nothing wrong with your back. You're completely all right now. That was, I don't know, eight, nine months ago. She's never yeah. had a back problem since. And so there's, uh, so, so you, what you're, you're talking about, I mean, this is a, I suppose, it's not a new field of, of research, but it's a well-established field of pain research. So there's something called neuroplastic pain um, or predictive coding which essentially is where you get stuck in this pain loop. So your default setting when you perform certain movements is that your amygdala, which is your threat detection system in your brain, 
it perceives the last time we did this, yep. this was the consequence. And it's almost like you develop a bad habit. So, yeah, I think um, psychotherapy, hypnotherapy, there's an app that we use called Curable, which is a bit like, um, it's a bit like CBT yep. for people with persistent pain. Because when people come to me and say, I've had back pain for 10 years, and I tell them, well, most injuries heal in three months, yeah. they'll go, well, how, come I, how, have, how have I still got back pain then after, after you know, 10 years, if, if everything heals in three months? And I said, partly because of the deconditioning that takes place. So you stop doing certain things because you're frightened it's going to cause an exacerbation of your back pain. I says, but secondly, I said, because your brain perceives that that movement you did when your back went is a potential threat. And I said, until you've done something to address that, you, you will continue to loop in this kind of this predictive coding pattern. And uh, yeah, and that's exactly what it is. And I'll just say to, to anyone listening as a caveat, I did check all of her medical history. You know what I mean? She had, <laughs> she was medically, it's, it's like this has been going on for like since she was 13. So that can't be an injury because nobody's fixed it. So therefore, it had I to think be the, the thing with it, yeah, and I think a lot with a lot of injuries, I think that there, there's it would be naive to think that if you've had pain for more than three months, which is what's classed as chronic pain, it would be naive to think there in there are there aren't any changes in your brain that take place. I mean, if you look at when people have shoulder problems, their their posture changes because the brain's trying to protect the shoulder. So you look at people's posture. I used, when I was at uni, I used to I was in, I was in uni in, in London, so I wasn't far from Waterloo Station. So on every break, I'd go to the coffee shop in Waterloo on Waterloo Station, um, and I just people watch and I'd watch and move and, and I'd think, right, what's up with his shoulder? What's up with her back? What's up with his leg? And you know, when people talk about good and bad posture, I don't think there is a good or bad posture. I think there's good. The bad posture is posture that doesn't work for it hurts. But usually bad posture is a consequence of injury. You know, I think we're not designed to be symmetrical. We're not designed, apart, apart from the beautiful people in the world, um, like people, you know, Brad Pitt, where you put a mirror down the, the face and they're symmetrical yeah. one side to the other. Um, I think the, the vast majority of us are, are destined to be, you know, ugly yeah. and asymmetrical. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm more concerned when I see somebody who's symmetrical, I'm more concerned by symmetry than I am asymmetry. Because I think asymmetry is a much more normal thing to happen. I, yeah, because I explain it to people. It's like, you remember that pub game, Jenga? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Every little injury or knock you've had, it's like pulling a little yeah. knock out. But it doesn't fall down because your body is so adaptive. That's exactly yeah. what your your brain's job is to do. It's like, oh, you've nicked this, you've nicked that. And you get all of these niggling injuries. And it might not look straight, but it's not going anywhere. It's solid. Yeah, yeah. There's a concept called tensegrity. So the if you think of the skeleton as like the the tent poles of your tent, yeah. If you think of the sheet that goes over the tent poles as your skin and your muscles and your fascia, and then you think of your guide ropes as the the thing that holds the tent poles up. Well, essentially, that's how your body's organised. So if we change the tension on one of those guide ropes, it pulls the tent in one direction or the other direction. It doesn't make the tent collapse. You know, that would take something fairly catastrophic for those things to happen. So, you know, the, the tent or tensegrity is a good analogy in terms of why we are 
able to do the things that we're able to do with, you know, I, I, in some of the situations I've worked in, some of the injuries that I've seen, you know, it's a wonder people are even able to stand and yet yeah. they continue to function because the brain is so good at, at, at adaptation. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, it's just rolling back, though. How did you get into this? Because you said you were in the army. Yeah, so I was, uh, I think I got into this. So I I was a hyperactive kid. So yeah. when I was a, when I was a, I was a rebellious hyperactive kid. So um, I got into sports when I was quite young. I thought I was swimming for the county by the time I was 10. Um, I won a national championship in cycling when I was about 15. But the thing that fascinated me about training wasn't so much the, 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 like the, the accolades that you get from winning a competition. It was the process. I was always very process-driven. So I remember at 12, 13 years of age, you know, I was reading Peak Performance magazine. If, this is before the internet, believe it or not, for people that uh, are yeah. younger than us. Yeah, we used to read paper. Yeah. Um, I actually wrote my dissertation. I hand-searched all of my journals for, for my dissertation. Yeah. Um, so I was reading what I could get my hands on to in terms of like training stuff, nutrition stuff. I was buying things like couscous from uh, Holland and Barrett before it was available in the supermarket. And my dad was a typical uh, working-class Midlander, drove a lorry for a living, and he said, what's, what's that fucking mock you're eating there? You know, it was like it was some, like it was some poison. <laughs> so at about the age of 19 i was i was cycling full-time at that point um with aspirations of, of becoming a cyclist a professional cyclist had a bad crash um i did lose my bottle if this was on a descent at 60 miles an hour so i had some you know pretty nasty injuries but if i was if i'm honest with you i'd lost my interest by that point the, yeah. the i'd achieved what i needed to achieve from that sport I'd realised, you know, I was arguing with my coach when I was 15, 16, that, that why was I doing six-hour bike rides? Why was I doing this? Because essentially it, it bore no relevance to my, you know, to what I was doing as far as my racing was concerned. So I left, I stopped cycling, and then I was at a bit of a loose end because I, I basically spent my time at school obsessing about training and obsessing about cycling on thinking about you know what, what i should be learning at school so I, I joined the forces on a whim i had no intention of you know joining the forces in fact my mom never spoke to me again after that because she was a pacifist and i did something that was completely at odds yeah, with yeah. her with her uh with her moral compass um what did you join so i was in the air force so okay. i was a, a physical training instructor in the air force and i I, I, I spent my time breaking people, I suppose is the best way to yeah. describe it. So in, in basic training, you have, you know, up to 90 recruits going through at one time. And there's probably 30 of them that graduate at the end of their of their basic training period. So part of my job was, you know, breaking recruits. Part of my job was getting people ready to go out on special operations. Did a whole variety of lots of other things. And then I went to a place called Headley Court, which is in Box Hill in Surrey. Mm -hmm. That was back then the Tri-Service Rehabilitation Centre. So I started working as a rehabilitation instructor. Um, and that was that was it for me. I, that, that was the, you know, if you found, what is that? There's the expression, if you, if you follow your passion, yeah. you'll never work a day in your life. And I realised that was my passion. 
and it allowed me to continue to obsess about training because training in my opinion is rehab and rehab is training it's there's yeah. no difference between the two um so went back to uni i did a degree my, my master's in, in osteopathy so i did a osteopath osteopathic undergrad um and i chose osteopathy over physio because it was much more it was much more in depth in terms of the clinical reasoning the diagnostics and i think diagnostically that's the starting point for every injury if you can't diagnose an injury effectively then what the fuck are you rehabbing and i think yeah. that's where a lot of, a lot of today's therapists struggle you know people come and see me who've seen other people and they say oh, i've been told i've got a tight muscle and i was like well a tight muscle isn't a diagnosis that's a symptom of something that's else is going on you know they don't they don't know how to dig and ask those questions so i did my degree um i realized doing my degree that wasn't a uh, um a complete moron uh, as i've been told at school um graduated worked in pro cycling for about five years so i was out in europe with the pro continental team worked in america in a mo for a motor racing team um came back to the uk had some kids went into lecturing when my kids were young because it was uh, a regular nine to five kind of hours and then worked clinically around side uni stuff and then probably six five six years ago maybe even longer than that now six seven years ago um i realized that i was unfulfilled in my role as a lecturer and that what i really wanted to get back to doing was doing what i loved doing way back in the you know late 90s early 2000s so we set up mofo me and danielle set up mofo and it's it's kind of well it's done it's it's done what i what I expected it to do you know it's yeah. ruffled a few fe few feathers um and it's i'm trying to change the way that i think rehab should be delivered and therapy should be delivered currently single-handedly but you know the tide is changing the, t the, you, the tide is turning building up um colleagues yeah, yeah. that feel the same aren't yeah you? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's I think a few of you now sort of coming out and saying there's a lot of bollocks out there and it has to stop. Yeah. And I think that's the problem. I think there's as a healthcare professional, people believe what you say. So you yeah. can make any old shit up and unfortunately it's like it's like the GP, you know, it's like you go into the GP and you, and you say, I've got backache and he tells you in Latin, You've got backache, yes, you've got lumbago. But now you've got a diagnosis. You know, he hasn't told you anything about what's causing your backache. He's just simply told you the same thing in Latin that you told him in English. And I think there is a danger that that people are, um, are scuppered into thinking that this is going to fix their back problem or this is going to fix the knee problem, which invariably you know, involves some degree of hands-on treatment. And as useful as that is from a therapeutic perspective, if you think about the amount of load that your body is you know, physically capable of withstanding, you know, we're talking of thousands of pounds of square, per square inch. Well, there's no way on this, on this earth, no matter how big your therapist is and how good your pain tolerance is, either your therapist is going to be able to put that, that much pressure down onto your tissues or you're going to be able to tolerate that pressure. And when I hear people saying, oh, I've seen the chiropractor for 20 years, and they're like you were talking about your friend earlier, I just think, well, you know, after four or five sessions, you'd think, well, it's, this isn't working. 
I'm 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 going to say to that client, this isn't working. This isn't the approach. I'm, I'm I think you should be taking. Either that's because you know there's no connection between you two. I think rapport is very important in therapeutic relationships, um, or because it's something that it that isn't amenable to you know hands-on treatment. So slowly, as I've gained confidence in, like I started off as a manual therapist. Um, and I always included rehab as part of the, the treatment package. And as I've gained more confidence and more knowledge in my ability as a rehab sort of guy, um, I've now stopped practicing from a hands-on perspective and I solely work from a rehab point of view. And my success rate is the same now as it was when I was doing hands-on and rehab without doing the hands-on stuff. You know, it's 95% success rate generally. It's crazy, isn't it? Because there's, I think there's always a couple of things that go on here is we, by human nature, there is an element to a lot of people that, and I think we're all guilty of it to start with. It's only when we realize like with hindsight, yeah, yeah, maybe there isn't a new gimmick. Maybe the body does know how to take care of itself maybe what I was actually chasing when I tried that newest, latest thing was, is there a way to get a five-minute result rather than having to do two hours of rehab? Absolutely. And we're kind yeah. of always that quick fix thing, isn't it? It's yeah, like, quick fix society, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're always searching for that and not understanding that your, your ultimate game goal should be, how do I remain as fit as I can be for as long as possible? Yeah. Because that can't include a quick fix solution. That yeah, becomes absolutely. a life a lifetime goal. Because yeah. you know you know, so you, you and I have sort of had a little conversation and messages about stretching, because I used to have this crazy stretching routine. And I could literally at one point stretch for an hour a day. I've still never been able to do the splits. Yeah. All right. So and people say, Oh, you know, there could be this, it could be that. Yeah, maybe I've just organically got tight hamstrings that are just like, you don't need to stretch any further than there. So you're never going to be allowed to do, you know, I could never, within a week of stretching, I can pretty much get back to where I used to be when I used to do an hour a day. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's never got past a certain point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. at my fittest. <clears throat> yeah. The only thing I've ever been able to pr- improve on is mobility drills and flexibility drills where everything's involved, you know, like some yoga poses, but again, I'm not a huge advocate for them. Um, but it, it's, it then taught me after a long, long time, stretching isn't the be all and end all for you. It might be great for someone else, but it, it doesn't work for you. And it then comes back to, right, can you still do the basics? Can you sit on your heels in a squat down position? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's pretty good then. Yeah. <laughs> can you hold yeah, your hands I, above I, your I head? Agree. Yeah. I think I think the problem is with stretching. Well, I think the problem with a lot with a lot of these kind of interventions that come out, you know, stretching. I that post I did on stretching, which gained, uh, I think, a lot of haters. Mm. Um, there was a lot. Of, there was a lot of dialogue on there, so it, it succeeded in doing what I wanted it to do. It got some discourse and discussion going. Um, I do see more injuries from stretching than I do from people who lift weights. You know, it was a statement of fact or my experiential fact. Um, and I think what what I really don't understand, I mean, it's it's like 
Kelly Storette, I think, started off the whole mobility kind of wad. You know, he was using bands and balls was and stuff like this. Was that Supple Leopard? Yeah, yeah. He wrote the book Supple I've Leopard. And I think he's written several several other books. And, yeah, I bought that book back in the day, um, as I bought many other books in, in their time. It's, it's, it's um, in the pile. It's in the pile. I have read it. You know, I've read uh, most of the books that I've read. I have actually. I have, yeah, I, have, actually I have read that book over the years. I have specifically gone through certain things. But yeah, I, I remember as soon as you said that name, I was like, didn't he do yeah. a really significant book? There? Uh, yeah. Was, yeah. There and um, I think he, mobility has gained, like most people come to me now and they'll say, oh, can you just give me some mobility exercises to fix whatever this injury is that I've got? And it usually isn't a mobility issue. You know, the mobility issue has come around because their body's trying to protect them from going into the positions that the body doesn't want them to access because it's painful. But we've all become, you know, obsessed about, like, banded this, banded that mobility, mobilising my hips, mobilising. Have you got any mobility exercise for my back? And as, as I say to people, I think if you can, if you can hit your as – a, as, a, as a powerlifter – if you can squat to depth, yep. if you can hit your shape in your deadlift, if you can get into position on your bench, your thoracic spine mobility is good enough to be able to create your arch in your bench, then you've got enough mobility to be able to perform your sport. And then I think when you add weight on top of that movement, so if you take a squat and you stick a bar on your back and now you've got a weight pushing you into that hole, well, I can't see how that isn't improving mobility and you know, flexibility and all the other various things that banded things are supposed to do. I go back to our earlier conversation about people running on the savannah and then there's Neanderthals. Yeah. I don't ever remember a time in my life where I've been super flexible. Even when I'm, you know, like every 90s, 80s and 90s teenager, I went from um, Bruce Lee to Jean-Claude Van Damme and all of that. So I was always doing... They've been reverse kicks. Trying to do the splits between the chairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all all of that. And I I was never super flexible. When I used to do kickboxing, when I did judo, when I did, you know, like every other kid, I chased around martial arts and bad aftershaves named after martial arts, right? (laughs) Hot karate. Yeah, there we go. 50p a bucket full. Yeah, I had plenty of that. Every, every, and every you can still smell it now, and it was last worn yeah. in 86. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I used to get a gift set from my nan every Christmas, yeah. a high karate gift set. You can't beat it. Kids Bliss today will never understand how, how we bad. felt like a superhero. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, or Bruce. I remember nicking my dad's Bruce yeah. from, uh, from out in the bathroom cabinet. But yeah, they'll I'm never realise how bad they smelled in the uh, 80s. Oh. Yeah, but yeah, we, we would put on a bit of slap and dash, and uh, you felt like a superhero and had the aura of yeah something. And the nineteen nothing filled a nineteen eighty nine disco more than aftershave vapor yeah. just floating out of the window, destroying the yeah. ozone layer. They're worried about yeah. climate change. You've got nothing. I, on what I, I think it was uh, it, it almost intoxicated. Was the from, yeah. from the fumes of that. I did actually work with a guy. This was when I was in the forces. I, I worked with a guy who, he was an alcoholic, and he got to the point where at the end of every month when he'd run out of money, yeah. he was drinking aftershave, he was drinking brutes, and anything that had got a higher alcohol content. Um, you can imagine he had no teeth and, and yeah, yeah. or anything like that matter, stomach lining, you know. But, oh. yeah, 
I think that probably is the it was drain cleaner is probably the best place for that stuff. But that's why we survived because we slapped that stuff on and it killed everything, including your skin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there was no, no such thing. No colds. No nothing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. So, like I said, the people our biomechanics are different. We're all different shapes. We're all different sizes. Lengths. Yeah. And we all have different abilities. Some people are natural runners. Some people are natural lifters. And you generally, as a general rule of thumb, if, if you're a natural runner, you're never going to be better than a guy that's a natural deadlifter. And the natural yeah. deadlifter is never going to outrun the Savannah guy. So you can't then say, well, we should all be flexible. We should all be mobile. We should No, your body has its own range of motion. And, and I think that those limitations are there. You know, it's, if you look at strength sports, one of the adaptive responses to people who lift weights is you get stiffer because yeah. if you're stiffer, you can withstand more load. You know, if you look at, I've got, um, I was doing a, a powerlifting, I was supporting a powerlifting meet um, and there was a couple of physios down there who were working down there on the events. So I was down there with a couple of athletes and they were telling people how bad it was that they couldn't hit depth with less than 100 kilos on the back. And I was like, well, I said, that's, he, he's going to squat 350 kilos. I said, so he needs to be tight like a spring because that's what he's going to use to get himself out of the hole and be able to stand up with that weight. And I think we we assume that the the adaptations that take place in response to strength training are, are negative adaptations. Mm. And I think they're specific adaptations to impose demands, you know, in the same way as the office worker develops yeah. that round shoulder, round back position, because it's the, the what the body's found a path of least resistance. It's the position that uses the most, the least amount of energy. Well, I had a, a realization only Sunday. I haven't, um, I've got weights in my garden and I've during lockdown and all of that, I've managed to collect more and more sort of thing, but I haven't actually done any serious weightlifting since the gyms were open in 2019. Yeah, because I just wasn't able to. So most of my stuff has been burpees, press ups. As I said, shooting, yeah, 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 fucked ligaments in my elbows from too many pull ups and stuff. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, I, I haven't done a proper squat for a while. I haven't seen how much I could like be prepared to squat on a one rep max, um, yeah, for at least four years. And I worked up to 140 kilos. Well, as I say, well, I haven't done 140 kilos for four years and then i thought yeah. and i'd already worked out that morning so I, and i just went back out in the afternoon because i it was playing on my mind can i still actually what, what could i lift if i need to and i probably could have done more i was just like that'll do and and then i thought i'll see what i can deadlift yeah and i, I managed 170 kilogram deadlift i haven't done a deadlift yeah. for four years but i, yeah, couldn't, I, think I the... couldn't run down the road or job yeah. for love or money yeah. But I've always just had a sort of strength. And I think strength is one of those things that you lose very, very slowly. You know, I think despite what people think, you know, when people embark upon rehab programs with me, is all my muscle going to fall off? Am I going to, you know, gonna, yeah. I'm going to end up in this, this, this like nine stone mess? Um, and they're actually incredibly surprised that A, they actually grow while they're rehabbing because what I'm doing is I'm not just managing the load of their injury. I'm managing the load across all of the training sessions. 
So we prioritise recovery. And I think more importantly is they realise that actually hitting those top-end weights all the time doesn't make you any stronger. Like you can, as you just, as you identified, you can leave those top-end weights alone for years and you can still come back and lift those, you know, nigh on, close on to those top-end weights. Because what people fail to realise is that strength is as much a skill, there's a, a neurological component to it, as there is a physiological component to it. So those pathways that you've developed through years of squatting, they're what you're firing up again, which what is what allows you to bring, you know, to, to bring 140 kilo squat for a one rep max after not squatting for four years. Yeah, I mean, I, I was genuinely surprised. I mean, I, I don't know what my once rep max is but that is close to what i used to do i used to do that for a few reps and yeah but i haven't done that for a few years and the deadlift was probably about 35 kilos off my one rep max i just didn't have any more i don't think i could have lifted any more to be fair but i was just like oh hang on a second that was a lot closer than i was expecting to get and i would say with a few weeks of i suppose dusting off those neurological pathways mm. you would be back up to that you know, 35 well, kilo plus more on the deadlift. The days, the times when it, over the years when I've tried to go running, like, you know, let's get some good cardio in, let's do some jogging. It, it doesn't matter how long I did it for. I was still shit. And I, yeah. I, and I never in, had massive increases, you know, like, oh, if my, if my one, my um, mile was a eight minute mile, well, after six months of running, it was just a seven minute, 59 second mile. <laughs> It just didn't change. Yeah, anything. and I think, yeah, and and I think there's. I mean, I I obviously I, I did a lot of running in the forces. Yeah. Um. So I I think my mile my BFT, which is the mile and a half fitness test, was I think it was six thirty four was my fastest time for a mile and a half. Now I couldn't run anywhere near that speed now because I'm probably thirty kilos heavier. Um. Because I've spent the last probably 20 years engaged in strength sports so but i'm sure you know if i dropped a few pounds and you changed your physiology you know your load management you'd probably find that running would become increasingly more comfortable but i just think it's again it's that whole paradigm isn't it where you know, somebody's t said running is the best thing to lose weight. So everybody, you see everybody out there now running, not because they enjoy running. I mean, that's the reason why we should do things because it's good for us and, it, and we enjoy it. Um, it's almost like a, a form of self-flagellation. Oh, it is definitely, definitely. It's, you know, the amount of people I've said this, oh, what do you recommend? Just go for a walk every day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, yeah, I think... but you hate exercise. Go, just yeah. put in your headphones, listen to some music, podcast, audio book. Go for a walk for an hour a day. You watch two hours of TV a night, so you can spare an hour a day to just walk every day. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, you know, walking from – I use walking a lot with my my clients as active recovery because I think there's a there's very little else that gets that kind of rhythmical rotation movement through the spine. Everything we do in the gym, everything we do is, in, in lots of sports is very linear. Yeah. And I think that little bit of rotation through the spine – helps to decompress the joints, loosen off all the muscles, the paraspinal muscles, but more importantly, it gets the blood pumping around your body, which helps to eliminate the waste products you've produced during your training session. The amount of people that won't believe me when I just say one of the health, if, if you're not naturally 
inclined to do sports because you and I are lucky in the sense that even on a bad day, we would rather go to the gym and do something. Yeah. It's just how we are. So we're lucky in that sense. But if, if people, I understand when people don't like doing an exercise and don't like it, but it's just like the healthiest thing you can probably ever do as a human being is walk yeah. an hour or two a day. Yeah. Mental health. Uh, and health. I would say, I think the, I think for a lot of people, the reason they don't like exercise is because a lot of people make out their exercise. You know, if you watch a lot of these like bodybuilders and the kind of the fit, the, the PTs out there, what they try and do is destroy people. You know, it's like they, they annihilate, they don't mm. stimulate. So I think it's it's not it's not surprising that people don't like the gym because the gym is synonymous with pain and suffering and hard work. And and actually, you know, I think to create some degree of stimulation, to create an ad- adaptation, it doesn't have to be that horrible and that, that much that, that that hell-like. Um and I think again, you've got people like David Goggins, you know, who's who. He's just I, not I, on I the gen- planet. Well, I genuinely think David Goggins is actually one of the most untogether motivational speakers. I think I've I've actually yeah. uh, ever heard a man that has to be in perpetual motion, who can't stop, who's running on, you know, essentially bone on bone because he's worn the cartilage down in his knees. Yet he's unable to stop doing those things. I think that's that's not a man I'm going to listen to in terms of my mindset and motivational advice. Well, I have you ever have you listened to his audio, his book, or read his? Book? I have, yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. It, you know, I as 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 much as I respect him, and I genuinely do, he he needs a therapist. Yeah, do you know what I mean? The, the, it's just like no, no. I, I completely admire his physical ability or his mental ability to ignore everything going on in his body but i would yeah. not suggest anybody does that no not at all and I, and I think i would almost say he that perpetual motion stops him from having to face his demons i think he, he he's running he away from yeah he, he's he running away from so. something. and i yeah. think the strong people you know if you look at people like I don't know, Jocko Willink, those yeah. sort of people. You know, that, that guy will probably happily sit and talk to his demons and spend an hour in conversation with them, <laughs> not feeling the need to get up and, and start running. And and yet we we aspire to be like, you know, Goggins. Who's, a like wonderful they, clip with Cameron Hayes where he talked yeah. about going out running with David Goggins or something. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah, got yeah. split up yeah. or something and... and yeah, Goggins ahead of him in the hill, and they said, "Oh, have you seen?" They, when they caught up, they said, oh, "Have you seen him?" And this guy's like, "Yeah, yeah." And they said, "What was he doing?" He's like, "Well, he had his shirt off," and he was like, "They don't fucking know me. They can't fucking touch me. Yeah, they yeah. can't." It's like, yeah. right, the guy's not the full ticket, is he? Do you yeah, know what I mean? If absolutely. he wasn't a Navy SEAL, he'd yeah. have been sectioned. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's funny, isn't it? How despite all those things. He's still someone that's revered and someone that's looked yeah. up to as an inspiration, as a role yeah. model. Um, and like, I, yes, I love training. I love sport. It's something I've always done. It's part of who I am, part of my DNA. But I think it's equally important you're you're as comfortable sitting quietly, definitely in that in your own head 
as it is that you're busy and you're active and you're doing all those things there you have to have that balance i think and for me it doesn't have that balance no no definitely not definitely not just quickly because i'm conscious um of taking up too much of your time um I'm, we're just going to run through a couple of more things that are on my list yeah some of them we'll put together scraping and cupping yeah what what are my thoughts um yeah so cupping i mean i think cupping is uh it's a counter irritant so the best way to describe cupping is if i put something tight on your skin when i take that something that's tight off your skin your skin and muscle superficial fascia feels looser is it changing the length of fascia i don't know because i think if fascia was that easily manipulated if we go back to our tent analogy yep if we could change the 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 i suppose the 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 pliability of the tent material that easily that tent would collapse so i think fascia has to have a degree of tensile strength and can we i mean certainly in things like the it band which is another sort of classic area that people get the foam rollers out and roll they've done some cadaveric experiments where they've taken the it band out of a body and they've suspended a thousand pound weight off the end of the of the uh, of the it band and when they it stretched a millimeter and when they took the thousand pound weight off it sprung back to its pre-stretch length it made no difference in, yeah. in the length now i'm sure people will probably say well yeah it's dead tissue it's not biological tissue it's not got a blood supply it's not got this but i do think that if we were if it was that easy to manipulate the fascia and the soft tissues then when we put 180 kilos 200 kilos on our back we just collapse into into a pool of you know jelly yeah. essentially i put it down to a placebo yeah i think i think and you know what i think people talk about placebo like it's a negative thing i think there's a very there's a there's a lot of good to be done if you can induce a placebo effect in people i think there's a a powerful physiological effect so zubieta um did some research into the physiological effects of, of placebo and demonstrated that you could actually measure if somebody thought something you could measure the physiological effects of that thought process hypnotherapy all, all, all yeah. you're doing is accessing yeah, yeah. your subconscious yeah and, and having a conversation with it it's all we're doing is this is how you think this is how you yeah. should be thinking you know it's, yeah it's, and so for me when i say like the placebo i don't think people appreciate how powerful that is yeah you can listen yeah. to some of the world's best athletes and ask them do, do you have a routine do you have a superstition yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i do and they do that between uh nadal's the one that's just popped into my head the way he must bounce yeah, yeah, yeah. amount of time yeah and if it's yeah. out of sequence he has to start again because if he doesn't yeah. do that his brain will not hit the serve the way he wants to yeah so 100 percent that that routine that goes in your brain that placebo that superstition that's all the same to me is just the way that yeah. you comprehend how something's going to be done they're rituals aren't they the yeah, rituals habits, rituals routines yeah. it's it's, it's yeah. there and you, you do that and it's the most powerful cognitive thing you can do but that's cbt yeah. nlp yeah they're, they're all off that 
this is the way you think this is the way you talk to yourself this is the way you believe yeah so <clears throat> that's where i think they work yeah and i think with you know cupping i heard someone say the other day it it draws toxins uh when you put them onto the back it draws toxins to the surface and i sat there and think thought to myself so what does the liver do then so if you've got what a why have you got toxins just in your back and B, what the fuck is the liver doing while you're cupping yeah. and doing all the stuff on there? I mean, that's what your liver is. It's a, it's a, uh, a detoxification unit. So, and then I the lymphatic system. Is it? Yeah, the lymphatic. Yeah, yeah, system, absolutely. It? It's the lymphatic yeah. system. Yeah. So everything drains all your interstitial, all the products of inflammation drain into the lymphatic system. There's filters in the lymphatic system which get rid of you know foreign bodies, bacteria, viruses. So lymph nodes so when your glands are swollen back in the day where you you know you sell you all oh, your glands are swollen and she'd feel your neck yeah. they're lymphatic nodes they're filters that are basically stopping the the passage of whatever it is that you've been invaded by tool assisted massage i think used in the right context is it's a nice way to access areas with your hands that are hard to access with your hands i think it's more about ease of access of areas than it is what you're actually doing. And what I take umbrance at with tool-assisted massage is when people come in and see me and they say, they show me pictures of the back um, and it's like it's like they've got third-degree burns. And I'm like, what what, what what, was that? And they were like, oh, it was some, uh, some tool-assisted massage. Is it normal not to be able to sleep on my back for three days after I've had that treatment? And so I'm like, no, it's not fucking normal. And I said... And just think of the impact that has on your recovery. If you're using yeah. this as a recovery tool, just think of the impact that has on your, on your recovery. So I think everything has its place. I think just like we talked about earlier, you know, some people will get a lot from cupping. Some people will get very little from cupping. I think some of that is, de is dependent upon your belief system and your rituals and your routines and, and what you think is going to work. Um, but I think in terms of the actual hard science, the jury's out. And I don't think it's doing what people think it's doing. It's certainly not breaking down scar tissue. I don't think it's releasing fascial adhesions, as people suggest it is, because I don't think fascia is that weak that a suction cup could change the the integrity of that particular part of the structure. Because if it was, you know, we'd be in all sorts of trouble when we were trying to lift, you know, big heavy weights out of our head or on our backs. I think the most it can do on a physical level is it makes you feel relaxed. And if it makes you feel relaxed, yeah, yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah. And I think there's a there's a lot to be said for the therapeutic effect of treatments yeah. in terms of that relaxation. So if we look at, you know, modern day life is very – we're in a stress response most of the time, aren't we? We're in a fight or flight response. Yeah. And healing doesn't take place, recovery doesn't take place when we're in fight or flight. Because you're not thinking about repairing that injury when you when you in your brain you think about fighting the dinosaur or running away from the dinosaur, which is essentially where you are. So if we can cultivate the parasympathetic part, you know, if we can cultivate that parasympathetic part of their nervous system, which is where all your housekeeping functions are taking place, again, I think there's a, there's a huge amount of power in that. Yeah, I so do. strongly recommend it to everybody. Yeah, so treatment for me has always been about 
creating as much of a parasympathetic environment as I possibly can do. You know, people used to come in. I worked with a, one of my clients is a behavioural neuroscientist, absolutely fascinating woman. Um, and she almost, she did like an audit of my building and she said, right, you need some plants near. Um, you need to play this sort of music and you need to play this kind of this. So we did a, we did some videos. So when people turn up to the clinic, there was a video that showed them where to park and we did a video that showed them where to go and what would happen. Because she said, the more you can get people into a parasympathetic nervous system state, the more effective your treatment's going to be. So by the time they walked in through the door, it was like they already knew me. So there was no, you know, kind of uh, awkwardness or, you know, any issues in terms of like rapport development. And then once you start treating, because I'm not beating the shit out of people, I'm trying to relax things down and loosen things off, working with them as opposed to through them. I, I was always surprised by, you know, when they stood up, they, they were like, oh, my God, I feel absolutely exhausted because you've gone into a, a deep state of relaxation. You've gone into that, that, that sort of parasympathetic part of your nervous system. I do a thing in hypnosis with people where I take them to the world's most comfortable, snuggly, relaxing, calming chair. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they all come out of it afterwards and they're like, I, I didn't know you could feel this relaxed. And I was just like, yeah. no, this is the first time you've ever been relaxed. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same. You just fall comfortably, nicely, calmly, sinking deeply into the world's most comfortable, relaxing, snuggly, calming, relaxing chair. And they're like, oh, yeah. Fucking. And, and honestly, it's my number one treatment. Yeah. And then people come to yeah. me, if they're just, oh, I feel so good afterwards. Yeah, you're just relaxed. It's that simple. You you walk around on a scale of one to 10, everybody is probably walking around at five. And you yeah. don't realize how stressed you are. And then yeah, by the time absolutely. you get to the end of the day, you've had a shit time trying to get to work. You couldn't park. Your boss has been a dickhead. And then you get home and one of the kids hasn't done their homework or has ripped their school uniform or, or fucking dropped a school trip on you. You go to bed at 10 right but you've got no escape you've got nowhere to go yeah so yeah you just go to bed feeling fuck really irritated and then you wake and up i think they you're probably at six and seven still as soon as you've woken up all i've done is set, I, reset you to zero and i think they the the other problem with that is that on top of all that stuff people are throwing another load of stress on themselves mm -hmm. when they go to the gym yeah. And they're doing their progressive overload and they're training to failure and they're creating all this tissue damage in a, in, 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 on an internal environment that isn't geared towards fixing that tissue damage. And I think when I talk about, you know, training and training to failure and progressive overload, I think the current paradigm in the fitness industry accounts for 90% of the reason why most people are injured. Yeah, because yeah, you can't you can't add weight week after week after week. Strength isn't linear, you know. As we've discussed, there's a big neurological component to strength. So, part of getting stronger is developing those neurological pathways. Well, you can't do that under a heavy load because your body's thinking, "Fuck, this is heavy." Rather than thinking about your cues for your squat, or your deadlift. I think the, and then I think we then take recovery for granted. You know, we expect, well, I'm not training now, therefore my body's recovering. But as you quite rightly said, if you're walking around at a five out of ten on a, on a stress scale, mm -hmm. well, you're not recovering. You're, you're still in fight or flight. And then we had a, 
you know, a few pre-workouts in, which pushes even higher into that fight or flight. We had some coffee in and some stimulants and, and before you know it, you know, you're at, you're at eight or nine, never mind yeah. five or six. Well, I, I reckon most people, if they've just had all of the things that we discussed, they go to bed at 10, will wake yeah. up tomorrow at six and seven and they've not yeah. had breakfast yet. And, yeah. you know, and then, like I said, and the kid's like, oh, mum, where's my PE kit? Oh, daddy, you yeah, yeah, yeah. today. And, but, and suddenly yeah. you're walking out the door at eight. And if you don't get a good few days of nothing happening to you, that won't go yeah. down. And all I'm yeah. doing is resetting people to a zero. Yeah, 100%. And, and that that's and that's the benefit that they feel. That miracle they think, think of a cured is nothing. And I think that's what good therapy should be. I think it should be a way of accessing their parasympathetic nervous system to, to give them a reset back to zero. I don't think it's about fixing injuries and, and hurting people and doing all the things that I see people do, using manual therapy for. I see it as a therapeutic uh, opportunity to get somebody from a six or seven out of 10 on that stress scale down to a two or three out of 10. And actually demonstrate to them. Oh, this is what this is what relaxation feels yeah. like. This is what it should feel like when I'm relaxed. Yeah, it is. I I used I still do it occasionally. I'll say to people as a test, "Can you give me five symptoms when you know you're stressed or, or under the weather?" And then they'll give me a list. And then I'll say, yeah. "How how do you know what your body's going through when you feel happy?" <laughs> and they've got no idea. Yeah, <laughs> they've got a clue. Yeah. They don't even know yeah. the first symptom, first awareness of their body when their body is happy. It's like when well, they yeah. know your problem. You don't know when you're yeah. happy. You don't know when you're relaxed. Yeah. You know? so, and I think, I think, unfortunately, I think you know. Again, it's we're the last of the Generation X kind of yeah. kids, aren't we? Um, I do look at you know. I've got I've got five, two, two kids, my own, three step kids, and I do look at their environment in comparison to the way we grew up, um, and do think that. A lot of the issues that arise, you know, mental health issues arise because of what they're viewing and seeing yeah. as, as, as normal. You know, if you talk, if you look, talk about mental health, you know, I think when I my last few years of lecturing, the instances of mental health issues among students rose exponentially, like in the last five years before I, I, I gave up. Um, and I don't think that was in any way, shape or form linked to a massive changes in the stress levels of society. I think it was because we started talking about it more and it became more of a, a topic of, you know, social acceptance. Um, ADHD, you know, ADHD has become the, 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 the fanboy now. Everybody's got ADHD and their, their, their bad behaviour isn't because they're, they're actually behaving badly. It's because they've got attention deficit disorder. Yeah, cause you and I would have gone outside built a ramp with our mates and gone flying off it on a bike and at some Absolutely. point during that yeah, afternoon yeah. we'd have fallen yeah. off it yeah and we'd have had shit loads of adrenaline getting dumped every time we cycled along like yeah. nutters thinking we were going super fast yeah and you'd hit that board for the first time and if you were lucky you had a solid piece of plywood if you didn't yeah. you'd bend in the middle and you were fucked yeah because you were and then you're over the bars yeah front teeth so, into the chain yeah. the tarmac right and and that did a lot to to, to raise your adrenaline and dump it you know, natural natural cycles that you should have growing up sort of thing, as we would have once upon a time running around. But we also learned to be bored. Yeah. We, we, there was a value to being bored. And the yeah, thing about absolutely. being bored is it encouraged you to do sort of long length, long procedure type activities, you know, like 
getting your mates together to build a ramp. You know, you had to go and find materials. You had to go and rob stuff out of your dad's garage. You had to gather together. You know, but you also just because somebody knew where there was a tree swing, but it was a 45-minute walk away. Yeah. Let's go there just so we can see if this swing is any good on this tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had nothing else to do. Yeah. So you become creative with your boredom. Yeah. Yeah, and I think boredom's, uh, you know, the, in the forces, I think, I think a lot of people think the forces is uh, it's you're on the go all the time. There's long periods of time where you, it's a case of hurry up and stand still. You know, you get, you get tooled up, ready to go out and do something, and then you sit in a hangar for three or four hours, yeah. you know, whiling away the, the hours by, however you want to while away the hours, playing cards or chatting or doing whatever. But, yeah, I, I, I just think we're... We've lost those those fundamental key skills that I think make it easier easier to survive in yeah. you know today's society. So the, the, the last one I've got for you is because you were the first person I seen kick back on this. That's hot versus cold compressed, where people like you sprain your ankle, make it cold. No, 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 yeah. let it do its thing. Yeah. And you were the yeah. first therapist I've seen kick back on this because I don't know. I've always known this, and I don't know where it, I don't know where I knew it from. Do you know what I mean? It's just, or I think it's just one of those, probably from being around head injuries and stuff. You you learn to just let the body repair itself. Yeah. And and you were the first therapist I've seen kick back and say, no, the body knows what it's doing. Let it do its thing. Yeah. So I think you, At Still, the founder of osteopathy. Now, this is back in the 1800s. This was around, around about the same time as Louis Pasteur came up with the germ theory and antibiotics. He came up with some osteopathic tenets, so some, some guidelines. And one of them was the body has its own medicine chest. Now, this was way before we knew what the immune system did. You know, this was way before we understood the white blood cells and all the different types of white blood cells and all the functions those white blood cells have. And I just think it's like if if you look at what inflammation is there for, so there's a cellular and a vascular cascade. So the cellular cascade is designed to get white blood cells into the area because it needs to either clean up the wound site if you've got a wound or it needs to clean up the edges of the muscle if you've torn a muscle. Now, in order to get the cells there, because these cells are quite big, your blood vessels, so the vascular cascade, your blood vessels have to get bigger, so they have to vasodilate. And to let the blood the blood cells out of the blood vessels, they have to become more permeable. So the pores in the, in the membranes of the blood vessels have to get bigger. So the body produces a number of chemicals. Histamine is one of them. So the thing that causes hay fever is produced when you go through an inflammatory response because it it makes things it makes your eyes run it makes your nose run so what you're doing is washing away the irritants yeah. and it's the same as, as what your body's trying to do inside so we come along and we go right let's put some ice on it then because it might swell uncontrollably and what does ice do it does the opposite it closes your blood vessels down it makes them less permeable so now you've got a situation where you've got stasis and you've got all of this you know, all the junk still in there and none of the good stuff, none of the white blood cells, the things that are going to start the repair process. You've got all those things kind of backing up, waiting to get into the area. And I think, as I used to say to students, it's like 
if we've been on the earth for you know i mean evolution and creation i suppose is, is another is, is, day for, is, a, is a debate for another day um but if we've evolved and we've been on the planet for a few million years do you honestly think by this point in our evolution the body makes a mistake by creating inflammation I, I i don't think it does and i think the reason why it's still the reason why it's still perpetuated is because there's a million dollar industry being created yeah out of ice and cryotherapy and cryocuffs and game readies and all the various devices that we use to cool and compression compression i think is different you know i think compressing a joint because it increases hydrostatic pressure pushes the those big blood blood cells into the area and it pushes inflammation back into the lymphatic system so I, i'm not averse to compression but ice i just think yeah i'm not sure apart from in the first early stages of bleeding when you're trying to create a clot i don't think there's any need for ice i think you let the body do what it's going to do yeah. and you just you know go with it the reason we want to control things is because we want that quick fix we want to get back to work we want to get back to the gym we want to get back to so we don't want to take the time it takes for the things to heal normally so where do you sit with ice baths um i think there's a recovery strategy i i like ice baths but they have to be the timing has to be right you know if they're, if they're done too close to a training window you essentially blunt some of the inflammatory effects of training yeah. So there's a potential that you're not maximising the effects of what you've done in that training session. There's a lot of good stuff coming out about norepinephrine. So you, ice baths produce uh, a, a happy hormone called yeah. norepinephrine. So norepinephrine is a pain reliever, and it's also a bit like serotonin. It increases, it boosts mood. So I do think there's there's merit in ice baths. I, I like them from, from the pushing yourself out of a comfort zone. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, that's exactly what I was going to say. When when you talked about David Goggins earlier, so during lockdown, I bought a, a like a, 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 bit, a deep paddling pool and I basically filled it with water. And although I worked all the way through lockdown because we were classed as healthcare practitioners, every morning I had an, an ice bath and I'd listen to David Goggins while I was sat in the ice bath. Um, and it was, I think, the, the single biggest thing it did for me, it was the ability to be able to do something that every part of my body went, I don't want to do that. My, yeah. The mental, it was like, no, I'm not, not doing that today. I'm not getting in that pool. And I'd get in there anyway. So mentally, yeah, incredible. I think no, it I, produced... I I think mentally, it's one of the, the best things you can do. Yeah. I yeah. did... I've seen some stuff lately, but nothing I can verify where, and I've seen it on a Joe Rogan clip to start with, but I've seen other people talking about it now, but it could just become a, be a trend without any real science behind it. People having a nice bath before training. Yeah. And I don't know why. Yeah. I'm not sure what the, what the rationale would be behind, behind that. No. To be honest with you. No, no. Again, if you're, if we're trying to, if we're preparing for, you know, to participate in a sport where we need elasticity and pliability and sliding surfaces sliding across each other, 
I don't know why we would be ice bathing before, because it's surely having exactly the opposite effect. I, I looked at it oh. as, is it one of those things where, and I, I'm literally just chucking darts at an open wall, is it one of those things where you jump in an ice bath and there's that cognitive yeah, sort of just, that, that just kind startles of, you yeah. and it brings yeah. you like, shit, stuff is about to happen. And then yeah. where literally all of that blood is going to go into your into your main organs, then you get out half an hour later, you're doing a warm-up on a treadmill. Have you somehow maybe reduced any inflammation that you may have picked up overnight, maybe flushed out a load of toxins, but you are now about to pump in loads of fresh blood into your muscles as long as you're warming up properly. I thought yeah. maybe, maybe yeah, there's a tangible yeah. result, yeah. but I could also be grasping a big handful of straws. And I think, you know, I think ultimately, as we've said before, you know, all of these things are they're nice if you've got access to them. Yeah. But I think, you know, don't underestimate the importance of sleep in terms of recovery and don't underestimate the importance of walking. You know, and that neither of those two things cost anything. <laughs> no, they don't. No. So I'm going to finish because that's a great place to stop. So I'm going to finish with one last random question. Yeah. If you could be anywhere at any time ever, 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 so what would you be driving? Where would you be? And what music would you be listening to? Wow. I think it'd be the 1960s. Yeah. Um, I think I would be driving maybe a Ford Mustang. Nice. Like in, like in Bullet. Yeah. Uh, music wise, God, there were so many good bands back in those days. Uh, it would probably be Bob Dylan, I think, probably. Oh, nice. Back, or maybe, or depending on what mood, or, or Pink Floyd, maybe back, even that kind of that sort of era. And where would but, yeah. you be? Um, I want to say San Francisco for some reason. That's maybe because I think Bullet was filmed in it San was, Francisco, yeah, wasn't it? Because that so maybe I'm just, where he comes over. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So maybe I'm just pulling that up. But America, I think, somewhere. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Cool.